Uh, If you have Bibles with you today, I invite you to turn to the Gospel according to Mark. We're in Mark chapter 15 today. And, uh, I mean, I can see the light at the end of the tunnel, figuratively and literally, uh, as we near the end of the Gospel according to Mark. But these are dark passages. This is a dark section. This is, in some ways, the story of the Christian church that we're reading here. It is, it is the beginning of everything of what the church would eventually become. It's in many ways the reason you and I gather here today in 2016. It's because of the events that we're studying now in the life of Jesus. And not to say the other events weren't important, but everything comes to a head in the Gospel of Mark here. And so this is dark, but it's also essential. And in some ways... We're going to be talking today about the heart of Mark's understanding of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so if you're a person today who has not given your life to Jesus, I hope that you'll have ears to hear. I hope that you'll listen. I hope that you'll come to understand more fully what it is that Jesus has done for us and why it needed to be done. We're going to talk about that some today. But if you, if you received the gospel long ago and you've been following Jesus for many years, I hope today is an encouragement to you to persevere in your faith, to not turn back. This is the Gospel according to Mark chapter 15. If, you, if you're able to do this, I invite you to stand for the reading of the Gospel. I'm going to be reading from the New Revised Standard Version. Mark chapter 15, beginning in verse 1. As soon as it was morning, the chief priests held a consultation with the elders and scribes and the whole council. They bound Jesus, led Him away, and handed Him over to Pilate. Pilate asked Him, Are you the king of the Jews? He answered him, You say so. Then the chief priests accused him of many things. Pilate asked him again, Have you no answer? See how many charges they bring against you? But Jesus made no further reply, so that Pilate was amazed. Now at the festival he used to release a prisoner for them, anyone for whom they asked. Now a man called Barabbas was in prison with the rebels who had committed murder during the insurrection. So the crowd came and began to ask Pilate to do for them according to his custom. Then he answered them, Do you want me to release for you the the king of the Jews? For he realized that it was out of jealousy that the chief priest had handed him over. But the chief priest stirred up the crowd to have him release Barabbas for them instead. Pilate spoke to them again, Then what do you wish me to do with the man you call the king of the Jews? They shouted back, Crucify him. Pilate asked them, Why, what evil has he done? But they shouted all the more, Crucify him. So Pilate, wishing to satisfy the crowd, released Barabbas for them, and after flogging Jesus, he handed him over to be crucified. Then the soldiers led him into the courtyard of the palace, that is the governor's headquarters, and they called together the whole cohort, and they clothed him in a purple cloak, and after twisting some thorns into a crown, they put it on him, and they began saluting him. Hail, King of the Jews! They struck his head with a reed, spat upon him, and knelt down in homage to him. After mocking him, they stripped him of the purple cloak and put his own clothes on him. Then they led him out to crucify him. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. I invite you to be seated. Some of you may remember some years ago, the movie The Passion of the Christ when it came out, and there was a lot of controversy about that film especially about the flogging scene, the scene really that we just read through. You notice how quickly it occurred in the Gospel according to Mark. It was a single sentence. But I imagine that the script for The Passion of the Christ must have been 20, 30, 40 pages long for that scene, if you remember it. It was so graphic that the movie received a rated R rating because of that scene. 
And uh, I wouldn't have been surprised, honestly, having seen it when it was first released, if uh, it received an NC-17 rating. Now, when I first saw that, and maybe you had the same experience, having read the Gospels so many times, I thought, wow, that's a bit excessive, because I didn't remember any of that in the Gospels. And, and yet, I did a little historical research after that, and it was fairly faithful to the kinds of things that Romans did to people who were crucified. Historically, this was considered one of the most abominable uh, kinds of execution imaginable. In fact, it was so devastatingly torturous that all Roman citizens were exempted from crucifixion by their citizen status. The great Roman writer Cicero called it the most grotesque, abominable, and humiliating form of execution ever imagined. And that's a Roman. So, so I, I guess it's, it's disconcerting to me that what was depicted in that film was probably what Jesus endured. But, is it surprising to you, and this is why I thought it was excessive, that Mark doesn't go into great detail about the physical sufferings of Jesus. Just a few lines about it, right? He was flogged. He was struck with a reed. And that's all we get. So why do the movies put such emphasis on the suffering, the physical torment, and Mark put his emphasis someplace else? Well, that's what we're going to talk about today. Because for Mark, he does give us a lot of details, but not about the physical sufferings. Now, it's possible that he may have just assumed he's writing to a Roman audience, most scholars believe, and they would have been familiar with crucifixion. I mean, they had probably seen it and certainly heard of it many times. So maybe it was just assumed that when Jesus said, well, I mean, when Mark said that Jesus was flogged, they would know what that meant, and he didn't need to go into detail about it. That's possible. But I suspect that for Mark, the importance of Jesus' crucifixion was about something other than simply the physical suffering. We'll see if you agree with me about that as we proceed. I'm calling this sermon the humiliation of Jesus. And for Mark, I think what's most important is not that Jesus physically suffered, though he certainly did in grotesque and terrible ways, but that he was humiliated. We're going to talk about that today. If you have your Bibles still open, I'm going to begin with a reading from Philippians. Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians... Colossians, Philippians chapter 2, beginning in verse 1. This is a passage that discusses, Paul discusses, what God did in order to become flesh in the person of Jesus. And this passage is called a lot of different things. The Greek word for empty is kenosis. And so this is a passage in which we're told God emptied himself and took the form of a servant. But in very many ways, Paul is going to describe what it means for the God, who is God above all things, to humiliate himself in the person of Jesus, to humble himself in the person of Jesus. And I want you to hear this, because I think it's the best way to shape our conversation about what was happening to Jesus at these trials, and in this flogging, and in these mocking scenes that we see before he's crucified. This is Philippians chapter 2, I'm going to begin reading in verse 1. If then there is any encouragement in Christ, any consolation from love, any sharing in the Spirit, any compassion and sympathy, make my joy complete. Be of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility regard others as better than yourselves. Let each of you look not to your own interests, but to the interests of others. Let the same mind be in you that was in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not regard equality with God as something to be exploited, 
but emptied himself, taking the form of a slave. Being born in human likeness and being found in human form, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore God also highly exalted him and gave him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bend in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. So this is Paul. Some call this an early Christian hymn. And that may very well be what it is. But for Paul, what's essential about the incarnation of Jesus is that He who was God became human for us. Now why did He do that? Well, there's an old saying. We've talked about it before. And I hope that it will come to mean something more to you today. This was a sermon on Hebrews uh, that I preached, I don't know, about a year ago that we dealt with a little bit of this. But this might be a new idea for some. So I just want you to prepare yourself for it. Why did God have to become human? One of the early church fathers said this. God became like us so that He could make us like God. God became like us so that He could make us like God. Now we know in Genesis chapter 1 that God's intention in creation was to create a being made in His own image. So that's not a surprising idea that what God really wants is for us to become like God. But why did He have to become like us in order for that to happen? And that's what we're going to struggle with today. And so some of what I'm going to discuss is, is, is a different way of looking at the cross, not because any other way is wrong, but because I think somehow this perspective has been muted. And I think we need to hear it again. And I'm going to start with an illustration. I was going to do this at the end, but because... Well, you'll, once I start with it, you'll see why. I'm not going to use it at the end. I don't want to ruin the moment at the end. I'll ruin it now. But I, I, I watched... I, 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 there was a time in my life where I played a lot of video games. That was hard for me to say. Do you notice I stammered? I never stammered. I don't know why that is. But I played a lot of video games. I really like video games. It's, it's gone away from my life now that I'm a full-time senior pastor and I have children. I mean, when in the world do I have time to do that? But I used to play, and there was a great game that I loved, and I invested a lot of time in it. Uh, I, I guess I'm a little sad to say. But uh, it was called Knights of the Old Republic. It was a Star Wars game. Surprise, surprise. And some of you might remember it. Not the, the online thing where you have to pay for a subscription. I won't do that stuff. I don't have time for that. But I used to play these games when you could actually play a game. You know, and you didn't have to pay for all these extra fees. And so I played this game, and there was a scene in which I had to fight this beast that I could not defeat. I tried to fight him about a hundred times. And every time he killed me. And I tried all different strategies. I tried... I know, some of you are going to sleep. Well, go to sleep. I give you plenty of illustrations. This is for young people. All right? And, uh, and so, so I, I laid all these mines, frag mines and stuff, and then I made him chase me, and so he get hit by him, and still I couldn't beat this thing. There was nothing I could do. And it's because I never read instructions. And my wife can tell you this when I put stuff together. I never read instructions and I didn't read instructions in this game. And so finally I decided I got to figure out how to beat this thing. So I started talking to people in the game because they give you insights, you know, and hints. And so finally I realized that I had to get this thing to eat a bomb. Well, how's it going to get it to eat a bomb? So I tried. It didn't work. I tried throwing it at its mouth. It didn't work. And so finally, because I did a little more researching, I found this little odor thing that I could spray the bomb with and it would make the thing eat it. And so I, I did that, and I put it in a pile of bones, and sure enough, the thing walked over, ate it, and it exploded. What does that have to do with Jesus? Everything. I, I, <laughs> death and corruption and decay. How do you defeat those things? 
They're like the, it was a Rancor monster in the game, for those who are dying to know the name of it. Uh, how do you defeat these things? Well, God's genius decision is that He would enter into them and explode them from the inside. That He would enter into death. That He would enter into corruption. That He would enter into decay. And from the inside out, He would devastate them. God became like us so that we could become like God. That's really the theme of the sermon today. And you're in for a wild ride, and this could get long because my notes have been gone since the beginning. I don't know what's going on with my tablet. So, you know, you know what this means. When I don't have notes, it gets long. So, uh, I used to be really good at 25, 30-minute sermons when I wrote out every word of my sermons. But some, some folks said, couldn't you just, just preach it extemporaneously? You're so good at that. And I said, sure, yeah, I'll do that. And now they've all been 45 minutes long. That's your fault. You asked for it. I'll write it out if you want them shorter. And now I have no notes at all, so here we go. But look back with me at Mark chapter 15. We're going to look at three aspects of Jesus' humiliation that are essential, I think, to understanding how He was intending to destroy the things that enslave us. First, He was humiliated by His own people, His own family, His own culture. Second, he was humiliated by a political process, a judicial process that was corrupt from the inside out. And third, he was humiliated by the most powerful force in the known world at the time, the Roman army, the Roman legions. And Jesus humiliates himself. Now, for the other Gospels, Matthew and Luke, they want to begin with Jesus' birth in Bethlehem as the first step of God humbling Himself and becoming like human, becoming like us humans. And that's important. But Mark doesn't take that tact. For Mark, and that's not to say he disagrees with Matthew or Luke, it just means that the emphasis is different. In the Gospel according to Mark, Jesus becomes most human in these scenes at the end of His life. This is the essential moment in which Jesus becomes human. Now, He's already incarnate. He's already in the flesh. He's not a spirit. He's really a person. We know He was born in Bethlehem. But it was in these events where He becomes most like us. And it's through these events that He sounds the death knell on all of the things that enslave us and always have. So we're going to look first at his shame by his own people. And we'll have to look back just a few verses to do this well. So look at Mark chapter 14, uh, verse 63. Preached on this two weeks ago, but we're going to have to return to it because it's essential to understand what's happening for Jesus in these scenes. Last time I emphasized Jesus' declaration that he was the king who was going to be worshipped and the Jewish people's decision that that must be a blasphemous thing to claim. And so they condemn him for blasphemy because he says it. But I want to look more at blasphemy. This is Mark chapter 14, verse 63. We find these words. Then the high priest, after Jesus confessed who he was, tore his clothes and said, Why do we still need witnesses? You've heard his blasphemy. What's your decision? All of them condemned him as deserving death. Some began to spit on him, to blindfold him, and to strike him, saying to him, Prophesy. The guards also took him over and beat him. Now, for Jesus, we have to remember who he has been through the entirety of the gospel. He was known among the people as a miracle worker. Someone who could come in and heal diseases that no one else could touch. Withered hands, leprosy, blindness. He raised the dead. So Jesus is a miracle worker. 
He's also one who is thought to speak for God. He's a prophet. And he claims that everything he says is coming from God. And so he teaches the people wisdom that if they were to follow it, he says, would lead them in the way of righteousness and of hope. So Jesus' entire ministry, in many ways, is about reputation. He needs the people to believe in the truth of the things he is teaching if they are to find freedom from the things that enslave them. He asks many times when people want to be healed, do you want to be healed? He credits their faith in Him with part of why they were able to be healed. Everything for Jesus depends on what people think about Him. And in this scene, the leaders of His own people are tearing everything that He has come to stand for apart. They call Him a blasphemer. Now for us, blasphemy is kind of a soft term. Because we think of blasphemy as using God's name inappropriately. And that certainly is a type of blasphemy, but it's, it's kind of flippant blasphemy. It's sort of like, like poor man's blasphemy, to use a, an old phrase. It's, you know, when you say the OMGs and, and the GDs and those sorts of things, I mean, that certainly is blasphemy, but that's the lowest... Bra- that's just like someone who doesn't care. That's just like using a word as though it doesn't mean anything. And that certainly is disrespectful to God and certainly not something Christians should do. But that's not real, hands-in-the-dirt, gritted-teeth blasphemy. Real blasphemy, and I hear this in the church actually more than I do in the world. Real blasphemy is when someone claims to speak on God's behalf words that God has never said. Real blasphemy is when someone claims to speak on God's behalf words God has never said. I've sometimes had people come to me and say... This is before I was a pastor, so they wouldn't call me Pastor Josh. But they say, Josh, God has given me a word for you. And I always would say the same thing. I hope you're sure. Because if he didn't, this is blasphemy. You got it, right? This is the real deal stuff. You better be certain. Now, this is what they accused Jesus of. Jesus had come and spoken in God's name. He had told them what God wanted for them in terms of Sabbath, in terms of care for the hurting, in terms of forgiveness, in terms of purity, in terms of righteousness, in terms of ethics. And He had spoken to them on God's behalf. And He had claimed that He was sent from God. And on this night, the Jewish people, the leaders, had decided that He was a liar. And they ridiculed Him in the way they did to prove that He was. Because if he's a miracle worker from God, then certainly he should be able to release himself from the bonds. If he's a prophet from God, then certainly blindfolded, he should be able to tell them who hit him. This scene reminds me of an old saying, how the mighty have fallen. You've heard that. How is it usually used? Well, it's usually used when somebody who has done something harmful to us, like Osama bin Laden, or that person who posted whatever they did on Instagram about me, or that person who, when I was walking down the hall, tripped me and laughed and pointed at me, or that person who got me fired from my job, whoever they are, when they get what's coming to them. How the mighty have fallen. This is what Jesus has to endure. Because he has ridiculed these leaders. He went into their temple and he accused them of mismanaging the house of God. He chased everybody out and said they had no business selling what they were selling in the temple courts. But they couldn't have been selling those things in the temple courts if the Jewish leadership hadn't approved it. And so in saying that, he was saying that they did not know as well as he knew what God wanted. And you know what's that like? What that's like? 
When someone tells you you should be living differently, and you, what do you think? You look at that person and you would love, wouldn't you, to blindfold them and hit them with a reed? How dare you? I've had folks disagree with sermons before because they were terrible sermons that I preached. And that's fine and legitimate. I've had other people disagree with them because they just didn't like what they said. And those people would love to see <laughs> some suffering. <laughs> Sometimes, I think that's why we had the dunk tank out there. I think that's why I was getting pressure to get in it, right? <laughs> but this is what Jesus is enduring. They are publicly calling into question His reputation, His claims. They are casting suspicion over everything He has ever taught, over three years of ministry, and He allows it to happen. The man who raised the dead, who healed the sick, who cleansed lepers, sat there and took it. Why? Well, one of two options. Either He really wasn't who He said He was, and He had no other choice, or He was allowing it deliberately to happen to Him. And the Gospels tell us that He was deliberately allowing it. This was part of Jesus becoming human. Because as God, He could have defended His reputation. He could have called down a legion of angels to protect Him. He probably could have said a word and sucked the breath of life out of every one of those guys and they would have dropped like the dust they were. He could have done any of it. But that would not have been human. That would have been deity. And so to become like man, God had to submit Himself to human ridicule. And he does it. Willingly. Because like that little bomb in the mouth of the rancor, he's got to go into it if he's going to destroy it. So Jesus allowed himself to be humiliated by his people. And then they hand him over to a terrible, terrible human being. Pilate. And to a justice system that they knew would eat him alive. And he allowed that too. And the second thing that happens for Jesus here in his humiliation and his becoming like human is that now he has to become part of a process in which he looks to be nothing more than a cog in the machinery. Certainly not like God of the universe. And some of you feel this way too. Because you're living in a political process right now that some of you feel, I've talked to you, you have no control over it all. It's just happening around you and you're spinning on this roller coaster ride where there's no turns, no stops, no breaks and you have nothing to say about it. Feels that way, right? Jesus enters into that exact same space for us. If you look here, I mean, look at the trial before Pilate where he, he just asks him if he's a seditionist. And Jesus says, you say that I am. And there, there's something sarcastic and non-responsive about that. And, and Pilate gets that. And this isn't your typical revolutionary for Pilate. You know, you've met people who really are full of themselves and think they're something. They always talk about it all the time. They never stop, right? But Jesus won't say anything about himself. He won't defend himself. He won't answer the criticisms. So Pilate knows there's something iffy going on. But there's something we have to know about Pilate. Now, Pilate has received sort of this romanticized treatment in the history of the church. There's a story even that he eventually, because of his encounter with Jesus, became a Christian. And in, in the Coptic church in Egypt, to this day, Pilate is known to be a saint. But the history we can recover tells a little different story of Pilate. Maybe that eventually happened, but that's not the man that Jesus encountered. Pilate was known to have a quite difficult relationship with the Jewish people. In fact, he was such a tyrant and so brutal that eventually Rome recalled him from this position because of Jewish complaints about the way he was governing. 
So this is a guy who didn't much like the people he was ruling. He was a knight, which is a certain status in Rome, and he had this post because he wasn't great enough to have any other one. And so there's all this kind of stuff going on. So when we read these verses in verse 6, look at your Bibles, if you want to. Now at the festival he used to release a prisoner for them, anyone for whom they asked. Now a man called Barabbas was in prison with the rebels who had committed murder during the insurrection. So the crowd came and began to ask Pilate to do for them according to this custom. So the crowd has come to get Barabbas released. They have not come about Jesus, according to Mark. But Pilate puts Jesus on the table. He says, then he answered them, do you want me to release for you the king of the Jews? For he realized that it was out of jealousy that the chief priest had handed him over. Here we have Pilate, the judge, and in Roman jurisprudence, this magistrate, Pilate, has the total authority to do whatever he wants. He doesn't have to counsel with anyone. If he says Jesus is dead, he's dead. If he says he's not, he's not. And he knows he's not guilty. He realizes it. He knows he's not guilty. He knows that there's some sort of a power struggle going on with these Jewish leaders in Jesus. And so it looks like, and this is from Ben Witherington III, a professor at Asbury, when he comments on this passage, uh, it looks like Pilate suggests that Jesus get released just to nag the Jewish leaders. Yeah, I know why you turned him up. What if we release him? Just as a bit of amnesty here at Passover. You know, I do this every year. Let's just let him go. You can imagine the Jewish leader. No, don't let that happen. This has been a long time in coming. And so they rabble up the crowd. No, 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 don't ask for Barabbas. I know why you came. Ask for Jesus. Ask for Jesus. And the people do it. And so finally, Pilate uh, makes it look like he has nothing to do with the whole thing. But he washes his hands of it in another gospel and in this passage here. He simply says, okay, okay, whatever you want, we'll crucify Jesus. But what we find out for Jesus here is that he, look at how insignificant he is to this process. He's just a pawn in a game being played between Roman politicians and Jewish leadership. And they're just using him. That doesn't look like the God of all creation, does it? That looks like you and me. Looks like you and me that when we go into the voting booth, we don't think our vote matters. I told you, like, I grew up in Massachusetts, and I never met a soul who ever voted for Ted Kennedy, but he was always elected. I didn't even meet Democrats who voted for him, and he was always elected. I mean, we just feel useless in the process. That's Jesus, too. He enters into that same situation, and we have to believe, if Mark is right about Jesus, that he wasn't standing there allowing himself to be paddled about by these powers because he couldn't do otherwise. He was allowing it to happen. Just like he entered into the humiliation that he endured at his people. He enters into the, into the humiliation of a process that has total sway over him and is not interested in his guilt or innocence. Is not interested in whether or not he truly did the crime that he is being asked to pay the time for. They don't care. This is politics. And Jesus enters into it. Because just like that bomb in the mouth of the rancor, he has to enter into these things to destroy them. So first he allows himself to be humiliated at the hands of his people. Everything about his reputation to be called into question and he offers no defense. How many of us have really lived into Jesus on that? Every time I get accused of something, first thing comes out of my mouth is a reason. Not Jesus. He also enters into a process in which he has no control whatsoever and he just lets it happen all around him and he submits himself to whatever happens in that process. If it were you or me and we were unjustly being tried and being sent to the electric chair, I don't know about you, but I'd be screaming bloody murder. <laughs> now look at Mark, chapter 15, verse 16. Well, really verse 15. 
And so Jesus is turned over, and Pilate, wishing to satisfy the crowd, released Barabbas for them. And after flogging Jesus, that one line that took up all that R rating in the movie The Passion of the Christ. And after flogging Jesus, he handed him over to be crucified. Then the soldiers led him into the courtyard of the palace, and they called together the whole cohort. We're not sure if that's 300 or 600 soldiers, but it's a lot of them. They clothed him in this purple cloak. After twisting some thorns into a crown, they put it on him. They began saluting him, Hail, King of the Jews. They struck him with a reed, spat on him, and knelt down in homage to him. And after mocking him, they stripped him of the purple cloak and put his own clothes on him. Here Jesus is put at the mercy of 300 or 600 soldiers. Is that a place you'd like to be? And they strip him naked. And they put on this purple cloak and they do a mock uh, Caesar ceremony. This is a ceremony that they would do for the Roman emperor when he came into a town where they would hail him as Lord. And they did that in a mocking way for Jesus. They crafted him a crown and they did all that. Then they strip him naked again. And they put his clothes on him and they send him away to be crucified. And even though in every version of the crucifixion we've ever seen, Jesus wears a loincloth, Romans intended this to be the most humiliating death imaginable. And unless they gave Jesus a special exemption because he was uh, Jewish, which seems unlikely, they also stripped him naked when they crucified him. Now, why, why is Mark so fixated on the nakedness? He doesn't tell us anything about all the whippings. He just said he was flogged. But twice he tells them that they stripped him naked. And earlier in the story, we preached on this, he talks about a guy in the garden who they grabbed his cloak and he ran away naked. There's all kinds of streaking going on in Mark. Why? Well, it all goes back to that garden again. Because there is nothing more vulnerable, nothing more powerless than to be stripped naked in front of people who will beat you and abuse you to death. And that's what they wanted. And that's what happened to Jesus. And He is the God of all creation. If He is, He could stop it. These guys are doing this to Him and He could stop it. They're mocking Him saying He's King and He really is King. And this mockery is the truth. And yet he submits himself to it. He enters into that abuse and that physical shaming and that humiliation and that vulnerability. The God who knew no pain, who knew no death, who always has been and always will be, who is the source of all life, who governs all that is, submits himself to this. Why? And how can we believe God would do that? But again... Jesus destroys the things that enslave us, not by attacking them, but by bringing them onto Himself. There's a story, uh, there's a little scene in the movie Ben-Hur, for those who have seen it. Now, I gave that Star Wars thing was for the young people, the Ben-Hur for those of you who are older. So, so Ben-Hur, there's a scene in which Jesus is on the cross, and one of the main characters has leprosy and is sitting there in the scene watching Jesus on the cross. And there's this great scene in which the, the leprosy appears on Jesus' hands as he's dying, and it's taken off of her. And of course, that's metaphor for what Jesus is doing. But this is what the prophets said God would do to save his people. He would not simply eradicate the things that assail them. He would bring them on to Himself. And for the early fathers, for the one who said that, G that God became like us so that we could become like God, Jesus had to accumulate all this stuff onto Him. 
He took our pain and our humiliation, our diseases and our suffering. He didn't so much, I know you've got to stretch your imagination here, He didn't so much heal the people of leprosy as He took the leprosy from them onto Himself. He didn't so much as heal the withered hand as He took the witheredness into Himself. He didn't so much make them people clean as He took their uncleanness. And as He accumulates it through humiliation and through death, He takes it with Him to the grave. And because He's God, He can escape. But because all that stuff is mortal, it cannot. And so He takes it to the grave, and He arises without it. And for the first time in human history, all that stuff that is essential to who we are, now there's a version of a human in which none of those things have power. That version is Jesus. And His promise to us is that if we believe Him, then all that garbage that infests us too will be left in the grave when He raises us from the dead. This is the Gospel of Jesus. But He does not defeat sin. Like, like I don't want to discard the fact that He's a sacrifice. He is, but we, we so today misunderstand the language of sacrifice. I don't want to say that Jesus isn't a substitution for you, because He is. But He is more than all that. He is the inoculation that will finally boost the human immune system so it can fight off corruption. He is the tree of life that if we can eat from it, all that corrupts us will become powerless in the wake of that inoculation. He doesn't take us out of the septicness of the world, but He makes us so resilient to it that even death cannot hold the people of God. This is Jesus, and this is the Gospel. And so what I have to ask you today is will you trust Him? Will you trust Him? I know, you could look at that same story and say, this is not the story of a God willingly enduring these things. This is the story of a guy who pretended to be God who clearly wasn't. Look at what happened to him. Clearly wasn't. And that's what his disciples thought too. That's what the early onlookers thought too. When he died on that cross, it looked like all of his adversaries were correct. That this guy was a charlatan. That the, God who, the guy who claimed to be the God of all creation, in fact, couldn't even escape a Roman execution. And they buried him in a grave. And for three days he was in it. And they thought the story of Jesus was over. And all of it changed for the disciples, not with the cross, not with the humiliation, not with the miracles, but with the resurrection from the dead. Because when they saw Him again alive, they had to change the way they thought about everything. And they were so changed by it that they were willing to give their lives for it. Now I know we've got crazy people who give their lives for all kinds of things today. I know that, that a story about eternal life and thousands of virgins and all that led some people to get on planes and crash them. And so the fact that somebody's willing to die for something in no way validates its truth. And I agree with that. But these guys weren't sold a story. They would have had to have been the inventors of the story. And if you made the whole thing up, and they crucify you and set you on fire, at some point might you say, okay, okay, I lied! I never saw him! But 500 people in the first century went to their deaths confessing that they had seen him.
not once or in a vision or in a dream at night, but over the course of 40 days that they ate with him, that they talked with him, that he came and went. This is not Muhammad going into a cave and coming out with the Quran claiming he was inspired. It's not Joseph Smith going out into the desert, digging up some tablets, coming back and saying that God gave these to him, translating them and having them whisked up into heaven. This is 500 people who died claiming that they saw him alive. And not at one time, over 40 days. And so what I have to ask you is this. Can you trust them so that you can trust Him? God became like us so that we could become like God. But the journey has to be like Him into the fray. And this is where your faith needs to take you and mine needs to take me. That I need to be willing to walk into the space of the ruining of my reputation. That I need to be able to walk into the space of me being part of a political and judicial process that could care less about me and is unjust and unfair. That I have to be willing to enter into ridicule and humiliation in front of the world if that's what's necessary. Because Jesus has told me that even though in my perspective all of these things look like dead ends, that these are the road that leads to life. And if I can go into them without fear, then I can be free. And then He will raise me from the dead. Have you trusted Him? Will you believe that these folks did not die for a story they invented, but for an experience they had? Can you trust Him? That He can take all that corruption and all that filth and all that stuff that's accumulated on you. He can put it in the grave. And He can raise you without it. Do you believe that that's your future? It is. It's the future of any who would believe in Jesus.